morning, church family. I'm going to be doing the Bible reading for us this morning. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2, and it's verses 11 to 22. That's Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore remember that formerly you were you who are Gentiles by birth are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hand of men. Remember that at the time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier of the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So let's now come before God in prayer as we uh, think about his word. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this passage from Ephesians. We thank you, Father God, that your word is living and active and that it speaks to our situation today and to our lives even now. Father, we ask that by your word and spirit that you would be informing our minds and transforming our hearts that we would be people who trust in Jesus and find our hope and security in him and in him alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One Sunday in the church I used to belong to, uh, there was a young guy, a, a teenager, who turned up at church for the very first time. Uh, one of the other guys in church had invited him along because he wanted him to be able to get to know Jesus. That's good, isn't it? That's great. That's always terrific when that happens. Uh, except for one thing, and that is that he wasn't dressed properly. Uh, he, was, he was wearing a baseball cap. Imagine that. Well, uh, <clears throat> before the service started, a couple of the congregation members uh, approached him and had a little bit, bit of a chat with him about that and uh, uh, let him know that uh, we don't wear baseball caps in the Presbyterian church. I wonder how that guy felt about that. I'd have to say that uh, I wasn't exactly thrilled when I heard that they had done that, but uh, because what's the message? 
What is the, the message that's being uh, sent out to that young guy? Uh, the message is that if you want to be accepted by God and by us, then there's a particular <clears throat> dress code that you need to adhere to. I wonder how he felt. Sometimes it's not just about um, traditional culture, like becoming more Presbyterian and understanding the Presbyterian dress code. Uh, there are some churches which teach that really in order to be kind of fully accepted by God and by them, that you need to do things like change your diet and start obeying Old Testament laws like food laws. Stop eating foods like uh, pork and rabbit and shellfish. So no more crabs or prawns or lobsters in your diet. You need to become more, in a sense, Jewish. That's what they're saying. To be accepted by God and by his people, you need to start obeying the Old Testament food laws. Become more Jewish. Now, uh, this was actually a much bigger issue for Christians in the first century than it is for us today uh, in churches such as the one in Ephesus and the other churches in that region. Uh, in Ephesus, where you may recall from Acts chapter 19, when we looked at that a few weeks ago, that uh, when uh, Paul preached the gospel in Ephesus, that he preached, first of all, in the Jewish synagogue. He wanted to help Jewish people to learn about Jesus, to understand their Messiah and to come to faith in Christ. And then after he was kicked out of the synagogue, he spent two, two and a half years or so uh, preaching Christ in a public lecture hall. And many people, many people believed in Jesus. Some of them were Jews. Many, perhaps most, most of them were Gentiles and non-Jews who came to trust in Jesus. So think now about that uh, Ephesian church. There's, there's Jews and there's Gentiles, and they are now members of the same church. Now, these days, if uh, there was a church, if we were part of a church which had a lot of Jewish people in it, we would think that that's a little bit unusual, wouldn't we? Well... Uh, in the New Testament, in the first century, it was the opposite to that. It, 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 for Jewish Christians, it was, it was remarkable, it was astonishing that there were actually Gentiles who were now believing in their God, who were believing in the God of uh, their forefathers, of, of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob, that there were, there were Gentiles who were now putting their trust in the Messiah, in the Christ. In fact, um, some Jews found that hard to grapple with, hard to wrap their heads around that that could even be happening. I mean, they had, uh, they had spent their lives obeying the Old Testament laws. They'd spent their lives, you know, circumcising their boys and only eating kosher foods and going to the temple in Jerusalem. And you can imagine, you can imagine them thinking, well, maybe these, maybe these Gentile Christians have to start doing some of that, have to become a bit more like us. And you might imagine the Gentile Christians wondering, well, maybe we should. Maybe we need to do that. Now, it seems that most 
of the Christians in the Ephesian church were Gentiles. But Paul knew that there were uh, Jews who were travelling around and who were visiting churches, particularly in that region, uh, and uh, going to those churches and, and teaching and getting, getting an audience and were actually saying to people to, that the Gentiles actually did need to obey some of the Old Testament laws, particularly the laws about circumcision. And so what are we to make of that? And how does Paul equip these Gentile Christians to deal with that issue? Well, in the second half of Ephesians 2, which we're looking at uh, this morning, and you might want to have it open in your Bibles if you've got a Bible, he starts by reminding them of who they were before they trusted in Christ. Let's pick it up at verse 11. He says, Remember, therefore remember, that you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. That is who you were. See, in the Old Testament, um, God had made some uh, very special promises to Abraham concerning uh, Abraham's descendants. And uh, God had promised that Abraham's descendants would would be his people, would be his special people. And he gave them the law through Moses, the moral law, so that they would know God's character and they would know their own sinfulness. Uh, And other laws, such as the food laws, to, to mark them out as being different from other peoples. And he also gave them the temple, and the sacrificial system, uh, the temple where they could know his presence and where they could receive his forgiveness. That is the rich spiritual heritage of the Jews. And the Gentiles, they had none of that. They had none of that. In short, says Paul, they were without hope, and without God in the world. That is who they were. Now, friends, in our day, that is actually the reality, that is true for anyone who does not put their trust in Christ. I sometimes see this at um, funerals, um, such as the funeral. A friend of mine uh, who was uh, killed... Uh, in, in a car crash. He was in his 30s and had wife and four kids and uh, it was terrible. His life was, uh, was, was ended in a, in a moment. He was a Christian friend and his funeral was a, was a mixture of, um, of very profound grief but also a great hope, certain hope, an assurance of hope because of Jesus and I remember one of his non-Christian friends afterwards uh, was, was reflecting on this. And he said, you Christians have something which 
which, which we, which people like me, we just don't have. And he was right. Because in Christ we have a certain hope, a sure hope, and we know God. But before Christ, <clears throat> these Gentiles were without hope and without God. That is who they were. Now, uh, last Sunday, when we looked at the first half of Ephesians 2, we, we learnt about a very important word, a very, very short word, a three-letter word. It's the word but. And Paul reminded the Ephesians in the passage we looked at last week that uh, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, but God has made you alive in Christ. And here, Paul reminds them of what uh, God has done for them with, in Jesus he says, you were without hope and without God in the world, but, have a look at verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Now let's uh, think about that. Uh, these, these Gentiles, they were alienated from, uh, from, from God and they were therefore not included in God's people. But now that has changed. Now instead of being alienated from God, they are now at peace with God. And instead of not being part of God's people, now they are one with Jewish Christians. So Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, no longer two people, but one people. One people. Because in verse 14, God has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall, of hostility. Now, what is this dividing wall of hostility? Well, uh, in Jerusalem, at the temple in Jerusalem, um, the, uh, the, the, the temple had as its core, at the very heart, the very centre of the temple, was the Holy of Holies, a place where uh, God symbolically dwelt, where only one person, the high priest, could enter into that room and only one day of the year, the day of atonement, and only after going through purification and ritual that he could do so. But outwards from there, there were different courts where various people could, uh, could, could go uh, to do sacrifices and, and so on. The outer court was court called the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were able to gather in the outer court, but no further. They couldn't get any closer to the Holy of Holies. They couldn't even enter into the court of the Jews. And there was a wall there that stopped that from happening. And there was a gate. And on that uh, wall, there was a sign. And we actually have some of these signs that uh, are still in museums. And uh, one of the signs said, and it gave a warning, and it said, and I quote, whoever is arrested will be responsible for his own death, which will follow. That's what I call a dividing wall of hostility, don't you? 
Go past this wall, enter through this gate, and it will be certain death for you Gentiles. The dividing wall of hostility. And yet, the Gentiles in Ephesus, most likely, they've, they've never been to Jerusalem. <laughs> they would have never been to the temple. They would have never seen that wall or that sign. But it was a symbol. A symbol of that which was the real barrier. And that is the law of Moses. Uh, the commandments which, which point the finger of, of guilt at sinful people. And the regulations which separated Jews from Gentiles. That's the real wall. Which had served a purpose up until Christ. It's the wall which came crashing down when Jesus actually paid for our sin, when he died on the cross. So that in Christ, these two groups, previously alienated from one another, Jews and Gentiles, now become one, one people, one people of God. And why? Well, in verse 15... God's purpose was to create one man out of the two, thus making peace. And so let's reflect on that. How did this happen for these Gentiles? Uh, was it by becoming more Jewish? Was it by giving up pork and circumcising their boys and all sorts of other Jewish traditions? No. In verse 13, the only way that anyone can have a relationship with, with God is through the blood of Christ. Who is makes perfect sense, really, doesn't it? Because Christ is the only one who has ever perfectly obeyed all of the law of Moses. And so he's actually the perfect sacrifice for sins. Check out verse 18. It is through Jesus that we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by one spirit friends um, the false teachers and that's what they actually are the false teachers they're not likely to say that we must obey the old testament laws in order to become christians some of them do but uh, more likely they'll tell us that uh, that you need to you'll become a more obedient christian more acceptable to god uh, if you not only put your trust in Christ, but you also start obeying all of these Old Testament laws. You become more obedient, a more obedient Christian, by becoming, in a sense, a more Jewish Christian. But how, if we are Gentiles who put our trust in Christ, how Jewish are we actually already? You know, Paul has reminded these uh, Gentile Christians of who they once were and what God has done for them in Christ. And finally, in verses 19 to 21, Paul now reminds them of who they now are. I'm going to read some of that for you. Verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the 
apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You know, um, there were two temples um, at issue here. In, in Ephesus, uh, there was a very large temple. Uh, it was the temple to the, the false goddess Artemis. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And, and people would flock to Ephesus to, uh, to worship Artemis at this uh, grand and false temple. And people in Ephesus worshipped Artemis. And people in Ephesus uh, uh, were involved in magic and sorcery and, and pagan idolatry and so on. In Jerusalem, there was another temple. Uh, the temple to the true God. And the greatest symbol of, of, of Jewishness, the greatest symbol of Judaism was actually that temple where symbolically it was where God dwelt and where sacrifices were made. But by his death, Jesus has decommissioned the temple in Jerusalem because the ultimate sacrifice for sin has been paid so that access to God is now available freely. And then Jesus started to build a new temple by his spirit. A temple not of bricks and stones, but a temple of people. A people, people like you and me. For if we trust in Jesus then that is because God, by his spirit, now dwells in us. We are the house of God. We are the temple of God. Can you get any more Jewish than that? But notice how this new temple is built. In verse 20, it's built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets who pointed to and who taught about Jesus, who he is, what he's done on the cross. Jesus, who is described there as being the, the cornerstone, the, the, the most important uh, building block in the temple, the cornerstone which, uh, which aligns the whole of the building in perfection. So, we need to be aware and we need to be wary. Um, a number of years ago, there was a lady who had started coming along to our, our church uh, because she wanted, to, she wanted to find out more about Christ and she was, she was getting to know more about Jesus, which was great. And then some uh, people who were neighbours of hers started visiting her and they were saying something which was a little bit different to what she was learning. And they convinced her that our church is, is actually not a biblical church. And the reason being because we don't obey some of the Old Testament laws. Some of the laws about Sabbath keeping and food laws and so on. 
But friends, if you start adding law to faith, then where do you stop? You might start with dietary laws, then well, what about circumcision then? You start circumcising people. What about mixing, you know, clothing made out of mixed fabrics? You're going to stop doing that. Where do you stop? And indeed, surely, if you have to obey some of the Old Testament laws, you have to obey all of them perfectly because you'll be judged by them. And uh, that lady, unfortunately, she was enticed away She was enticed away from the grace of Jesus and into the law of Moses. And this is why the Ephesian Christians, um, the Gentile Christians particularly, needed to understand that they are in fact now full citizens of God's kingdom. And not um, people who are part of God's kingdom because they're on a tourist visa or a temporary, you know, residence visa, but full citizens, equal citizens, totally citizens in Christ. Not Christ plus law, not Christ plus tradition, just Christ alone. One of our ministers, um, Peter Charles, has a very rich Christian heritage. Uh, Do you know, um, Peter's uh, great, 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 great whatever grandfather uh, was a a man by by the name of Thomas Charles, who was a Christian, uh, who studied theology at the University of Oxford and who trained for ministry under John Newton. You know John Newton? He wrote a hymn, didn't he? (laughs) Amazing Grace, the most... Popular hymn in the whole world. We sung it earlier on in our service. And Thomas Charles was a Welshman and he went back to Wales and he started ministering there. And in Wales, he was one of the guys who was responsible for establishing the whole concept of Sunday schools, which for generations we've taken that for granted, haven't we? He was one of the guys who actually established the Bible Society, the British and Foreign Bible Society, which over the centuries has uh, produced and distributed countless Bibles to all sorts of people all around the world. And Thomas Charles uh, taught his children about the gospel of the Lord Jesus, who taught their children about Jesus, who taught their children down through the generations to Peter, who's now teaching his, his children. That is a very rich spiritual history a heritage. And I've actually got none of that. You may have none of that. As a teenager, I would have been like that young kid who was coming along to church for the first time and wearing the wrong thing on his head. Doesn't matter, does it? Doesn't matter your background. Doesn't matter who you are or how you've lived or what your spiritual heritage is or is not. You might be like someone who, like a Jew, who could trace your spiritual heritage right back the way, way back to Father Abraham. Or you might be like one of those Gentiles and Christians in Ephesus 
has just turned away from worshipping Artemis and you've just tossed all of your sorcery scrolls on the bonfire. Doesn't matter, does it? Doesn't matter who you are, uh, what your background is, what you've done in life, what you may regret in life. The only basis for full and complete citizenship of God's people and membership of God's family and being an heir to the promises, the only basis is God's grace and mercy in the death of his son Jesus for you and for your sin. Full citizenship. Perhaps um, you're watching us today and may even be the first time that you've, um, you've logged on and watching these services online. And you're thinking, but maybe, just maybe, these Christians do have something which I don't have and I need. Forgiveness from God. Membership of God's family and an eternal hope for the future. Friend, if that's you, you don't need to be excluded from that any longer. It can all be yours. God offers it to you, full acceptance into his family if you put your trust in Jesus and turn your life over to loving and serving him. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for everything you've done for us in Jesus. Father, many of us know just how, what it feels like to be um, excluded from you and without uh, you and without hope in this world. We thank you, Father God, that you've, you've done something profound about that, that uh, your own son Jesus has died on the cross so that we can be fully accepted by you, not on the basis of our own merit or our tradition or our religious law-keeping, but purely on the basis of Christ's blood shed for us. And we can now be not only united with you, but united with all others, regardless of their background, who put their trust in you. And we can have a hope, a hope which is secure for the future, a hope that uh, goes into eternity. Father, we pray that each one of us would, uh, would understand and would grasp that, would accept that, and would rejoice in that. And Father, we pray that we would be people who would want others to understand, to know and experience that full acceptance from you and from your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.